You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 123 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all will recall, when we left off last week, after the collapse of the hornet's nest, the Confederates were endeavoring to put together a coordinated assault on the final Union line just above Pittsburgh Landing, but they were running out of time. The first rebel units ready to renew the attack were Chalmers and Jackson's brigades. They began their advance against the Union left about 6 p.m., when the sun was only about 20 minutes away from setting. As Chalmers and Jackson's men launched their attack, they were taken under fire by the massed artillery that anchored Grant's final line, and also by the Union timberclads out on the Tennessee River. The nearby Federal infantry, positioned to support the gun line, fired blindly into the billowing clouds of dense white smoke that hid the rebels from their sight. In his book, Shiloh, Confederate High Tide in the Heartland, Stephen E. Woodworth writes, quote, On the crest of the ridge behind the big guns, Grant sat his horse, quietly for the most part, while bullets and shells whizzed past. A subordinate rode up and spoke to him. Then, as he turned away from the general, the younger man's head disintegrated under the impact of a Confederate shell, spraying Grant with gore but leaving him unhurt. A few moments later, as Grant walked his horse along the line, another officer, probably snatching a gap between detonations of the guns, said to him, "'General, things are going decidedly against us today,' to which Grant replied, "'Not at all, sir. We are whipping them there now.' as he gestured toward the bucking cannon and the enemy somewhere out of sight in the roiling white cloud beyond. End quote. Besides help from the two timberclads, the Tyler and Lexington out on the river, Grant's men also by that time had received their first reinforcements from Don Carlos Buell's Army of the Ohio. A single regiment, the 36th Indiana, from the lead brigade of Buell's lead division, had been ferried across the river after finally arriving opposite Pittsburgh Landing about 5 p.m. after a miserable all-day march down from Savannah through the muddy bottomlands on the east side of the Tennessee. As the 36th Indiana was ferried across the river on steamboats, it was led by Colonel Joseph Amon and accompanied by Bold Nelson, the division commander. The 36th had a difficult time debarking at Pittsburgh Landing because of the crowd of skulkers that had congregated at the bottom of the bluff, right alongside the riverbank. And that's one thing we haven't talked about up until this point. 
that mass of men who had run from the front lines and ended up at the landing, where the river prevented them from fleeing any farther. In his book, Shiloh, Bloody April, Wiley Sword explains how, quote, Pittsburgh Landing had been the focal point upon which the broken and retreating Federal troops had converged throughout the day. By mid-afternoon, the landing area was jammed with thousands of milling, bewildered Federal troops. Here the scene was humiliating in the extreme, wrote one of the survivors of the hornet's nest. All was an immense mob, he continued, a great rout, halting because it could retreat no further. Another eyewitness, an officer of Grant's staff, was disgusted to find that the space under the bank was literally packed by thousands of men who from inexperience and fright had lost their grip. At one time he saw a mounted officer with a United States flag riding back and forth on top of the bank, pleading and entreating, Men, for God's sake, for your country's sake, for your own sake, come up here, form a line, and make one more stand. But the appeal fell on listless ears, he wrote. No one seemed to respond, and the only reply I heard was someone saying, That man talks well, don't he? Moreover, when some of the battle-weary fighting men, retreating to the landing, were also harassed by officers attempting to rally the skulkers, there was a backlash. To an exhausted private who was suddenly accosted by an officer and chastised for running away, the incident smacked of hypocrisy. A man on horseback, with the cleanest uniform and the brightest sword I saw that day, rode pell-mell upon us, and in a loud voice called us cowards and the like. He was out of reach of either bullets or cannon shot. He ordered us to fall in line with his men. We did not, but suggested to him that if he would move to the front, he would find something that would take the shine off his sword. While many of the soldiers who had fought throughout the day reached the landing, they were embittered by the spectacle they saw before them. A wounded Iowa corporal, after painfully making his way to the rear, revealed his disgust, saying, At the landing I saw those miserable cowards who had run away in the morning. Their officers were vainly trying to rally them and form them in line, but many utterly refused to move. Perhaps 10,000 or even as many as 15,000 men from Grant's army were crowded along the riverbank at the landing when the steamboats carrying the 36th Indiana came up. Bull Nelson had a company wade ashore and secure a beachhead at Bayonet Point. Then a gangplank was set out and Nelson rode his horse down it, drawing his sword and shouting for the skulkers to give way as the 36th filed ashore and pushed their way through the mass of men to the top of the bluff. That single regiment of Hoosiers, the first unit from Buell's army to arrive on the western shore, were not a significant addition to Grant's force, of course, but the reinforcements were a welcome sight to those who had been waiting in vain all afternoon for the arrival of Lew Wallace's errant 3rd Division. As we already related back in episode number 119, the 3rd Division was still about a half-hour's march from the battlefield when Lew Wallace and the officers from Grant's staff, John Rollins and James McPherson, heard the deep roar of the big 24-pounder siege guns and the sustained firing of the Timberclad's cannon. And that sound told the men that the Confederates were assaulting Grant's final line, and the realization, as Rollins later recalled, 
quote, filled our minds with a terrible apprehension. Back on the ridge above Pittsburgh Landing, however, the crisis passed fairly quickly. Rather than an all-out coordinated assault on Grant's final line, the Confederate attack went in with just those two brigades, Chalmers and Jackson's, and unfortunately for the rebels, those units had to not only advance through the most difficult terrain in front of the Federal line, but their advance also took them within easy reach of the Timberclad's guns. Once Webster's gun line and its infantry support opened fire on the advancing Southerners, it was too much for them, and before long, the two brigades fell back. While Chalmers and Jackson attacked the Union left, Bragg, Polk, and other Confederate officers had been working feverishly to bring up more troops before daylight faded. One of those officers, Brigadier General Jones M. Withers, was busy pushing part of his division forward when he was astonished to see another part falling back. He was so angry at the sight that he was prepared to find the officer responsible and place him under arrest. But then Withers discovered that the men were retreating in response to orders that had come down from Army headquarters. Those same orders were going out to units all along the Confederate front line. You see, all day long, PGT Beauregard had been at his headquarters in the rear, doing his part as second-in-command to direct troops forward to the front lines. But Beauregard could only respond to events happening at the front as he perceived them, that is, from delayed or sketchy reports that filtered back to his headquarters. And so his orders throughout the day usually consisted of simply sending units toward the sound of the heaviest fighting. As the confusing, complex battle that was Shiloh unfolded, Beauregard, from his position well to the rear of the front lines, could not possibly have had a very clear, accurate, or immediate perception of the battlefield. And then, when Beauregard received word that Albert Sidney Johnston had fallen and he was now in command of the army, Beauregard continued directing the battle in much the same way as he had throughout the day, that is, from the rear. He continued to do so until nearly sundown, when he sent out those orders for the army to break off contact with the Yankees and withdraw to a line roughly corresponding to the captured enemy encampments. It was this order that so surprised Withers and Braxton Bragg and other officers who were striving to put together a big coordinated assault that would be a final attempt to break Grant's last line before nightfall. In Shiloh, Confederate high tide in the heartland, Stephen Woodworth writes that, quote, Several factors brought Beauregard to this decision. First, he believed Grant's army was completely defeated and not really capable of further heavy fighting. It could just as easily be mopped up in the morning. Second, he had received reports from cavalry scouts that Buell was still some distance away and would not be along for another day or two. Finally, he believed that the heavy naval cannon of the gunboats were doing serious execution within the ranks of his army. But all three points were incorrect. Based on those faulty assumptions, however, Beauregard decided that there was little to be gained from pressing the attack with darkness approaching, so he gave the order for all units to pull back and bivouac for the night in the Yankees' captured camps. 
Beauregard later came under severe criticism for his decision, with Braxton Bragg later on being one of the loudest voices raised in opposition to Beauregard's orders. But that seems to be a lot of ex-post-facto smoke-blowing by Bragg, since there's no evidence that at the time, that is during the battle, he ever raised the slightest objection to the orders to break off the attack and fall back. Another champion of the so-called lost opportunity theory was William Preston Johnston, the fallen Albert Sidney Johnston's son. For decades after the battle, he insisted that the Confederate army at Shiloh on Sunday evening lost the opportunity to win a decisive victory. He said that the army was on the verge of a decisive victory when Beauregard's orders broke off the attack. And then historians for the last 150 odd years have also heaped coals upon P.G.T. Beauregard's head concluding that being two miles behind the front lines, he was not in a position to make such a call. The consensus seems to be that he should have gone to the front, consulted with his subordinate commanders, and then made a decision about whether or not to suspend the fighting. But what if Beauregard had attacked? Could a final assault have broken Grant's last line and won a smashing victory for the Confederacy? Well, we'll never know, of course, since we can't say for certain what could have happened, but we think it's doubtful the rebels would have been successful, considering darkness was fast approaching, uh, the exhausted condition of most of the Confederate troops, and given the strength of Grant's line and the fight still left in the Union soldiers manning that line. Uh, we don't think the Confederates had the time or the power to break that last defensive line and win a spectacular last-minute victory on Sunday evening. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
As the guns fell silent after twelve hours of practically unbroken savagery and darkness fell across the battlefield, the furious racket of combat was replaced by another sound, the moans and cries of thousands of wounded men lying between the opposing armies. Many years later, the most distinct memories of Shiloh, of many participants, revolved around the terrible sounds of the wounded out between the lines pleading for help throughout the long, dark night. The suffering of those wounded men was soon compounded by a cold rain that began to fall on the battlefield. In his book, Shiloh, In Hell Before Night, James Lee McDonough writes of how, quote, The rain came slowly at first, then gradually fell harder and harder until it beat against the ground in torrents. Continuing through most of the night, the downpour was accompanied by a cold, chilling wind that swept the battlefield. An intense darkness was broken only by flashes of lightning and the fuses of shells in the sky momentarily illuminating scenes of wretched humanity. Every fifteen minutes, all night long, a gun on each of the Union gunboats roared from the Tennessee River, sending giant eight-inch shells arcing toward the Confederate lines, their red fuses lighting up the starless night for a brief instant before they came screaming down, exploding and scattering fragments of iron in all directions. The shells were intended primarily to terrorize the rebels, but many Union soldiers found that the thunderous roar to be expected from the gunboats at such regular intervals made their own night that much more miserable and sleep impossible. A soldier in the 41st Ohio Infantry bitterly described the constant shelling as one of the stupidities of the war. And Confederate General Patrick Claiborne reported that while some of the shells burst close to his men, he thought the majority were falling among the wounded Union soldiers who were strewn thickly between my camp and the river. History records few instances of more reckless inhumanity than this. McDonough concludes by writing, quote, Many of the wounded, Confederate and Union, were spending an agonizing night, the last night some would ever know, in the blackness between the lines of the armies. As the flashes of lightning lit the fields and the rolling thunder rumbled through the timber, they found themselves alone, except for the other wounded and the innumerable bodies of the dead. While many of the exhausted Confederates collapsed in the Sibley tents of the captured Union encampments, Many of the rebel soldiers, more hungry than tired, were busy plundering the enemy camps. With few exceptions, everywhere behind the Confederate lines there was confusion and disorganization. Many of the southern soldiers apparently thought the battle had been won, and so they made little effort to find their regiments or brigades. Beauregard attempted to reorganize the army for a final blow in the morning, but his efforts were, at best, only partially successful. Bragg, Polk, Hardee, and Breckinridge were given new responsibilities, but the command situation was still confused and bore little relation to the actual position of the troops. James Chalmers reported that Confederate Cavalry Commander Nathan Bedford Forrest came to him about midnight with the report that Federal reinforcements were being ferried across the Tennessee to Pittsburgh Landing in an unending stream. 
Forrest asked for the location of Beauregard's headquarters, but Chalmers didn't know where the Army Commander's HQ was located, nor could he tell Forrest where any other general was spending the night. Forrest then asked where Chalmers' own command was located. Chalmers said his men were sleeping on their arms just to the front of where the two men were standing, to which Forrest replied, You are the first general I have found tonight who knows where his men are. On the other side of the lines, most Union officers seemed to assume that Grant would withdraw his army under cover of darkness. Sometime early that night, Grant was standing with several other officers around a fire when James McPherson rode up. McPherson, one of Grant's most trusted subordinates, dismounted and gave his report on the Army's condition. He reported, in essence, that the Army was badly battered and the men were utterly exhausted. Grant listened, but showed no reaction to the information, which could have hardly surprised him. McPherson continued, asking, "'Well, General Grant, under this condition of affairs, what do you propose to do, sir?' Shall I make preparations for a retreat? Grant reacted with surprise, saying, Retreat? No, I propose to attack at daylight and whip them. Stephen Woodworth points out that Ulysses S. Grant may have been the only man wearing blue on the battlefield who that night thought the question of defeat at Shiloh was an open one, or who seriously contemplated winning a victory the next day. Pulling out would have been the safer course. Doing so in the darkness would no doubt have been somewhat chaotic, but most of the Army of the Tennessee could have certainly been ferried across the river to link up with Buell, and those units that couldn't have got across the river Sunday night could have retreated north to Crump's Landing and been taken over to the east side of the river on Monday. However, withdrawal from the battlefield would have been an admission that the Federals had been whipped, and so for Grant, the decision to renew the fight at dawn on Monday morning seems to have been almost automatic. Woodworth writes, quote, No decision of the battle was ultimately more decisive than that one. Indeed, it was the last truly significant decision of the battle. If Grant had decided to retreat across the river, as almost any other general would have done in his place, Shiloh would have been a major Union defeat. Because he determined to stay on the West Bank and fight it out, it became a Union victory. It probably saved Grant's career and certainly put the Union in a much stronger position to win future victories in the West, and yet Grant seems scarcely to have considered doing anything else. We were a bit rough on Grant last week, saying that as Army commander, the buck stopped with him as far as the debacle that unfolded in the Union Center, with the encirclement and collapse of the hornet's nest. But this week we want to give him full credit for one of the pivotal decisions, probably the pivotal decision, in a battle that was a turning point in the war in the Western theater. So we're going to close this episode by sharing a passage from Charles Bracelin Flood's uh, book, Grant and Sherman, The Friendship That Won the Civil War. This scene uh, in this passage pretty much sums up everything that we admire about the generalship of Ulysses S. Grant. To set the scene, uh, you just need to know that Grant, seeking some place to lay his head that night, had found that the only cabin above Pittsburgh Landing 
was being used as a field hospital, with a growing pile of amputated limbs being thrown out the windows. The nearest, next best available shelter was under the branches of a large tree close by. And so here's the passage from Flood's book. In the early hours of April 7th, 1862, after the terrible first day of the Battle of Shiloh, Brigadier General William Tecumseh Sherman came through the darkness to where his superior, Major General Ulysses S. Grant, stood in the rain. Sherman had reached the conclusion that the Union forces under Grant's command could not endure another day like the one just ended. When the massive Confederate surprise attack on the vast Federal encampment beside the Tennessee River began at dawn on April 6th, Grant's command had numbered 37,000 men. Now 7,000 of those were killed or wounded, another 3,000 were captured, and more thousands were huddled along the bank of the river, demoralized and useless as soldiers. Sherman, who had been wounded in the hand earlier in the battle, was coming to tell Grant that he thought they should use the transport vessels near them at Pittsburgh Landing to evacuate their forces so that they could put the river between us and the enemy and recuperate. Sherman found Grant alone under a tree. Hurt in a fall from a horse on a muddy road a few days before, Grant was leaning on a crutch and held a lantern. He had a lit cigar clenched in his teeth, and rain dripped from the brim of his hat. Looking at the determined expression on Grant's bearded face, Sherman found himself, moved by some wise and sudden instinct, not to mention retreat, and he used a more tentative approach. Well, Grant, he said, we've had the devil's own day of it, haven't we? Yes, Grant said quietly in the rainy darkness, and drew on his cigar. Lick em tomorrow, though. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Grant and Sherman, The Friendship That Won the Civil War by Charles Braceland Flood. So you guys know the deal. Uh, now I tell you that you can find everything you need to know about the podcast, uh, about us, about life, the universe, and everything uh, if you head over to the show's website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Uh, then we thank any new members of the Strawfoot Brigade, of which there is one, Margie. Thank you. Thank you, Margie. And then we thank any donators, of which there were none. <sighs> Very sad. Um, then we thank Spiritwood Music for letting us use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the podcast's intro and outro music. But the biggest thank you this week goes out to Tracy, who, as you might have been able to tell from her voice and her uh, limited role in this week's show, uh, she is a bit under the weather. Uh, it didn't take long after the start of the new school year for Tracy to come home with a sore throat and cough and then lose her voice. Uh, I actually recorded the latest members episode this morning by myself, uh, finishing up our series on the Great Locomotive Chase, uh, but she must have thought my solo effort was a bit of a train wreck, pun intended, so despite her sickliness, she gallantly volunteered to try a limited role in this Shiloh episode. 
which I'm sure all of you are just as happy about as uh, I am. So let's all say thank you to Tracy. One, two, three. Thank you, Tracy. You're welcome. And happy birthday. Thank you. Did I mention today's Tracy's birthday? And oddly enough, it's her twin brother's birthday also. So happy birthday, John. Okay, now I'm getting the uh, getting unmistakable signals that I better wrap things up. So uh, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week when we continue with the story of the Battle of Shiloh. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.